Chapter Four, Part B of Greener Than You Think. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore. Chapter Four, Part B. No one doubted the atomic bomb would do the trick finally and conclusively. The searing volcanic heat, irresistible penetration, efficient destructiveness, and the aftermath of apocalyptic radiation promised the end of the grass. When I say no one, of course I mean no clear-thinking person of vision with his feet on the ground who didn't go deliberately out of his way to look for the dark side of things. Naturally, there were crackpots, as there always are, who opposed the use of the bomb for various untenable reasons, and among them I was not surprised to find Miss Frances. Though her pessimistic and unpopular opinions had been discredited time and again, the newspapers, possibly to enliven their now perpetually gloomy columns with a little humor, gave some space to interviews which, with variations predicated on editorial policy, ran something like this. Will you tell our readers what you think of using the atomic bomb against the grass? I think it, at the very best, a waste of time. At the worst, extremely dangerous. In what way, Miss Francis? In every way. Did you ever hear of a chain reaction, young man? Or radioactivity? Can you conceive, among other possibilities, and mind this is merely a possibility, a quite unscientific guess merely advanced in the vain hope of avoiding one more folly, of the whole mass becoming radioactive, squaring or cubing its speed of growth, or perhaps throwing before it a lethal band miles wide? Mind you, I'm not anticipating any of this, not even saying it is a probability. But these or similar hazards may well attend this ill-considered venture. You speak strongly, Miss Francis. None of the rather fantastic things you predict followed Hiroshima, Nagasaki, or Bikini. In the first place, I tried with apparent unsuccess to make it clear I'm not predicting. I am merely mentioning possibilities. In the second place, we don't know exactly what were the after-effects of the previous bombs because of a general inability to correlate cause and effect. I only know that in every case the use of the atomic bomb has been followed, at greater or lesser intervals, by tidal waves, earthquakes, and other natural phenomena. Now, do not quote me as saying the Hilo tidal wave was the result of the Nagasaki bomb, or the Chicago earthquake the bikini, for I didn't. I only point out that they followed at roughly equal intervals. Then you are opposed to the bomb. Common sense is. Not that that will be a deterrent. What would you substitute for it? If I had a counter-agent to the grass ready, I would not be wasting time talking to reporters. I am working on one. When it is found by me or another, it will be a true counter-agent, changing the very structure and habit of Synodon Dactylon as a metamorphizer changed it originally. External weapons, by definition, can at best, at the very best, merely stop the grass, not render it innocuous. Equals fighting equals produce only deadlocks. And so on. The few reputable scientists who condescended to answer her at all, and didn't treat her views with dignified silence, quickly demonstrated the absurdity of her objections. 
chain reactions and radioactive advance guard sunday supplement stuff without the slightest basis of reasoning not a mathematical symbol or laboratory experiment to back up these fictional nightmares and not use external weapons indeed was the grass to be hypnotized then or made to change its behavior patterns through judicious sessions with psychoanalysts stationed along its periphery whether because of miss frances's prophecies or not it would be futile to deny that a certain amount of trepidation accompanied the decision to use the bomb residents of arizona wanted it dropped in california san franciscans urged the poetic justice and great utility of applying it to the very spot where the growth originated all were in favor of the devastation at the farthest possible distance from themselves partly in response to this pressure and partly in consideration of other factors including the possibility of international repercussions the commission to combat dangerous vegetation decided on one of the least awesome bombs in the catalogue just a little bomb hardly more than a toy a plaything the very smallest practicable ought to allay all fears and set everyone's mind at rest if it were effective a bigger one could be employed or numbers of smaller ones this much being settled there was still the question of where to initiate the attack edge or heart once more there was controversy but it lacked the enthusiasm remembered by veterans of the salt argument a certain lassitude in debate was evident as though too much excitement had been dissipated on earlier hopes leaving none for this one there was little grumbling or soreness when the decision was finally confirmed to let fall the bomb on what had been long beach when i read of the elaborate preparations being made to cover the great event of the special writers experts broadcasters cameramen i was thankful indeed i was no longer a newspaperman arbitrarily to be ordered aloft or sent aboard some erratic craft offshore on the bare chance i might catch a comprehensive or distinctive enough glance of the action to repay an editor for my discomfort instead i sat contentedly in my apartment and listened to the radio whether our expectations had been too high or whether all the eyewitnesses became simultaneously inept i must say the spot broadcast and later newspaper and magazine accounts were uniformly disappointing it was like the hundredth repetition of an often told story the flash the chaos the mushroom cloud the reverberation were all in precise order nothing new nothing startling and i imagine the rest of the country as i did turned away from the radio with a distinct feeling of having been let down first observation through telescope and by airplanes keeping a necessarily cautious distance showed the bomb had destroyed a patch of vegetation about as large as had been expected though not spectacular the bombing had apparently been effective on a comparatively small segment and it was anticipated that as soon as it was safe to come close and confirm this the action would be repeated on a larger scale while hundreds more of the baby bombs as they were now affectionately called were ordered and preparations made systematically to blast the grass out of existence the aerial observers kept swooping in closer and closer with their cameras trained to catch every aspect of the damage 
there was no doubt an area of approximately four square miles had been utterly cleaned of the weed, and a further zone nine times that size had been smashed and riven, the grass there torn and mangled, in all probability deprived of life. Successive reconnoitering showed no changes in the annihilated center, but on the tenth day after the explosion a most startling observation of the peripheral region was made. It had turned a brilliant orange not a brown or yellow, or any of the various shades of decay which Bermuda in its original form took on at times, but a glowing and unearthly jewel-like blaze. The strange color was strictly confined to the devastated edge of the bomb crater. Airmen flying low could see its distinction from the rest of the mass, clear and sharp. In the center, nothing. Around it, the weird orange, and beyond, the usual and accustomed green but on second look, not quite usual, not quite accustomed. The inoculated grass had always been a shade or two more intense than ordinary synodondactylon. This, just beyond the orange, was still more brilliant. Not only that, but it behaved unaccountably. It writhed and spumed upward in great clumps, culminating in enormous overhanging caps, inevitably suggesting the mushroom cloud of the bomb. The grass had always been cautious of the sea. Now the dazzling growth plunged into the salt water with frenzy, leaping and building upon itself. Great masses of vegetation, piers, causeways, isthmuses of grass offered the illusion of growing out of the ocean bottom, linking themselves to the land, extending, too late, the lost coast far out into the Pacific. But this was far from the last after-effect. Though attention had naturally been diverted from the orange band to the eccentric behavior of the contiguous grass, it did not go unobserved, and about a week after its first change of color, it seemed to be losing its unnatural hue and turning green again. Not the green of the great mass, nor of the queer periphery, nor of uninspired devil grass. It was a green, unknown and living plant before, a glassy, translucent green, the green of a cathedral window in the moonlight. By contrast, the widening circle about it seemed subdued and orderly. The fantastic shapes, the tortured writhings, the unnatural extensions into the ocean were no longer manifest. Instead, for miles around the ravaged spot where the bomb had been dropped, the grass burst into bloom. Purple flowers appeared. Not the usual muddy brown faintly mauve, but a red-violet, brilliant and clear. The period of generation was abnormally shortened. Seed was born almost instantly. But the seed was a sport. It did not droop and detach itself and sink into the ground. Instead, tufted and fluffy, like dandelion seeds or thistledown, it floated upward in incredible quantities, so that for hundreds of miles the sky was obscured by this cloud bearing the germ of the inoculated grass. It drifted easily, and the winds blew it beyond the confines of the creeping parent. It lit on spots far from the threatening advance and sprouted overnight into great clumps of devil grass. All the anxiety and panic which had gone before was trivial in the face of this new threat. Now the advance was no longer calculable or predictable. At any moment a spot apparently beyond danger might be threatened and attacked.
immediately men remembered the exotic growth of flowers which came up to hide some of london's scars after the blitz and the lush plant life observed in hiroshima why hadn't the all-wise scientists remembered and taken them into account before the bomb was dropped why had they been blind to this obvious danger fortunately the anger and terror were assuaged observers soon discovered the mutants were sterile incapable of reproduction more than that though the new clumps spread and flourished and grew rapidly they lacked the tenacity and stamina of the parent eventually they withered and dwindled and were in the end no different from the uninoculated grass now a third change was seen in the color band the green turned distinctly blue and the sharp line between it and the rest of the weed vanished as the blueness shaded out imperceptibly over miles into the green the barren spot made by the bomb was covered the whole mass of vegetation thousands of square miles of it was animated by a surging new vigor so that eastward and southward the rampant tentacles jumped to capture and occupy great new swaths of territory triumphantly brother paul castigated the bombardiers and urged repentance for the blasphemy to avert further well-deserved punishment grudgingly one or two papers recalled miss francis's warning churches opened their doors on special days of humiliation and fasting but for most of the people there was a general feeling of relief the ultimate in weapons had been used the grass would wear itself out in good time meanwhile they were thankful the effect of the atomic bomb had been no worse if anything the spirit of the country despite the great setback was better after the dropping of the bomb than before i was so fascinated by the entire episode that i stayed by my radio practically all my waking hours much to the distress of button fleas every report every scrap of news interested me so it was that i caught an item in a newscast probably unheard by most or smiled aside if heard red egg organ of the russian poultry farmers editorialized a certain imperialist nation unscrupulously pilfering the technical advance of soviet science is using atomic power contrary to international law this is intolerable to a peace-loving people embracing one-sixth of the earth's surface and the poultrymen of the collective little red father have unanimously protested against such capitalist aggression which can only be directed against the soviet union the following day red star agreed on the next pravda reviewed the threatening situation Two days later, Izvestia devoted a column to blackmail Peter the Great, Suvorov, and imperialist Slyness. Twenty-four hours after, the Ministerial Council of the Union of Soviet Republics declared a state of war existed, through no action of its own, between the United States and the Soviet Union. At first the people were incredulous. They could not believe the radio reports were anything but a ghastly mistake, an accidental garbling produced by atmospheric conditions. Historians had told them from their school days of traditional Russian-American friendship. The Russian fleet came to the Atlantic coast in 1862 to escape revolutionary infection, but the Americans innocently took it as a gesture of solidarity in the Civil War. 
the Communist Party had repeated with the monotony of a popular hymn-tune at a revival that the Soviet Union asked only to be let alone, that it had no belligerent designs, that it was, as Lincoln said of the modest farmer, desirous only of the land that jines mine. At no point were the two nations' territories contiguous. Agitators were promptly jailed for saying the Soviet Union wasn't, if it ever had been, a socialist country, its imperialism stemming directly from its rejection of the socialist idea. As a great imperialist power bursting with natural resources, it must inevitably conflict with the other great imperialist power. In our might we had done what we could to thwart Russian ambition. Now they seize the opportunity to disable a rival. Congressmen and senators shredded the air of their respective chambers with screams of outrage. In every speech, stab in the back found an honorable, if monotonous, place. Sadanov, boss of the Soviet Union since the death of the sainted Stalin, answered gruffly, War is no minuet. We do not wait for the capitalist pigs to bow politely before we rise to defend the heritage of Tsar Ivan and our own dear, glorious, inspiring, venerated Stalin. Stab in the back? We will stab the fascist lackeys of Morgan Rockefeller and Jack and Hines in whatever portion of the anatomy they present to us. As usual, the recurring prophets who hold their seances between hostilities and invariably predict a quick, decisive war. In 1861, they gave it six weeks. In 1914, they gave it six weeks. In 1941, they gave it six weeks. Were proved wrong. They had been overweeningly sure this time. Rockets, guided missiles, or great fleets of planes would sweep across the skies and devastate the belligerents within three hours of the declaration of war, which, of course, would be dispensed with. Not a building would remain intact in the great cities, nor hardly a civilian alive. But three hours after Elmer Davis, heading an immediately revived Office of War Information, announced the news in his famous monotone, New York and Chicago and Seattle were still standing. And so three days later were Moscow and Leningrad and Vladivostok. Astonishment and unbelief were nationwide. The Empire State, the Palmolive Building, the Mark Hopkins, all still intact? Only when commentators, rummaging nervously among old manuscripts, recalled the solemn gentleman's agreement never to use heavier than aircraft of any description should the unthinkable war come, did the public give a heartfelt sigh of relief. Of course. Both the Soviet Union and the United States were nations of unstained honor, and, rather than recall their pledged word, would have suffered the loss of a dozen wars. Everyone breathed easier, necks relaxed from the strain of scanning the skies. There would be neither bombs, rockets, nor guided missiles in this war. As soon as the conviction was established that the country was safe from the memory of Hiroshima, panic gave place to relief, and for the first time some of the old spirit was manifest. There was no rush to recruiting stations. 
but selective service operating smoothly except in the extreme west took care of mobilization and the war was accepted if not with enthusiasm at least as an inescapable fate the coming of the grass had not depleted nor unbalanced the country's resources beyond readjustment but it had upset the sensitive workings of the national economy this was tolerable by a sick land and the grass had made the nation sick in peacetime but war is the health of the state and the president moved quickly all large industries were immediately seized as were the mines and means of transportation a basic fifty-five hour work week was imposed a new chief of staff and of naval operations was appointed and the young men went off to camp to train either for implementing or repelling invasion then came a period of quiet during which both countries attacked each other ferociously over the radio. End of chapter 4, part B